Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the criminal trials stemming from the tragic death of Ahmaud Arbery, a 25-year-old black man who was pursued by three white men, Travis and Greg McMichael and William Roddy Bryan, and was eventually shot to death by one of those men, Travis McMichael. Last week, a jury was impaneled for the trial, and opening statements were delivered by both the prosecution and the defense. However, in between those two events, the case made national headlines when it was announced that the jury would consist of 11 white jurors and only one black juror in a community where nearly 25% of the population is black. On our last episode, we heard arguments over the prosecution's motion that the defense's peremptory challenges to black jurors were improper because they were based on their race. Judge Timothy Walmsley found that by striking 11 of the 12 black jurors, the defense was required by law to explain race-neutral reasons for those strikes. We also presented arguments over one of those individual jurors. In this episode, we pick up as the defense proceeds through the list of the other 10 black jurors they had blocked from the jury. In the interests of time, we are going to offer brief excerpts from a few of the attorney's arguments over specific peremptory challenges by the defense team. And then we will return for more of my conversation with Georgetown Law Professor, MSNBC analyst, and one of the nation's most frequently consulted scholars on issues of race and criminal justice, Paul Butler. That's all coming up after the break. 143 is a juror that uh, actually generated a lot of discussion among the, the McMichael defense team. This is Bob Rubin, who, with his law partner Jason Sheffield, represents Greg McMichael. Initially, we, we liked him a lot. We thought he could be a fair and impartial juror based on the answers he gave in court. Is <clears throat> The problem is what we found out about juror 143 outside of court. Juror 143 told us that he... Um, was getting married next weekend and um, could serve despite the marriage that he wasn't taking care of any part of it. I think his fiance was was doing everything. Um, when we looked at his fiance's social media, we found that she was a strong supporter of the Justice for Ahmad movement. Her, now my say this wrong, but her face page or her Facebook page, I'm not sure the right word for that, but the initial thing you see is a close-up of her face. I object. At this point in time, that's not before this court. There's absolutely no evidence. This is Mr. Rubin stating in his place that he looked at somebody's Facebook page and found some other stuff. That is not evidence before this court. That is not what that juror said, and I object to this. It's sustained. If they said it during more dire... It's not if it was discussed and identified, that's fine. But let's not talk about something that wasn't actually brought up in Vordire. Here's William Bryan's attorney, Kevin Goff, again. 
Well, the whole, the whole point of why we struck juror 143 and didn't see them is not because of what he said in court or did say. It's because of what we found out about him. For instance, he told the court and told us that he resigned from, let's find my notes, resigned from uh, being a police officer with the College of Coastal Georgia. In fact, his certification was revoked. We have his post records. He was not honest about... Um, Objection once again. These records are not before this court. That's not an evidence. He wasn't questioned about that. I'm happy to introduce those. Well, but we're explaining to the court the race-neutral reasons for striking this juror. They're, of course they're not in evidence. We didn't know he would be challenged under, under McGowan. If we're going to reference them, they need to be part of the record. So let's figure out how to make them part of the record. This is Bob Rubin again, comparing his strike of the black juror 143 to the prosecution's strike of a white juror 291. Juror 291, who was struck this morning by the state, was struck for exactly the same reason, which is that the state found out and candidly told us about it this morning that a juror 291's boyfriend, not the juror herself, but her boyfriend, was seen in a photograph wearing, I understand it to be a Confederate flag on a t-shirt he was wearing or something of that sort uh, based on what the state told us this morning. Same race neutral reason. We have no problem for the state uh, striking that juror for that. That's, that's up to the state. Same reason, not based on race, not subject to a McCollum challenge. The state was candid with defense attorneys this morning. The state went up to them and said, hey, with this particular juror, we did find her fiance on his knee before her proposing on his Facebook page with a Confederate flag on his T-shirt. We're going to strike him. And we told him that this morning and offered to show them the photographs that we downloaded from Facebook. In this case, we received nothing from the defense about research they'd done afterwards in order to let us know about any of these things. Right now, I have no idea if this Facebook page that allegedly has Maude Aubrey is in fact this juror's fiance. I don't know what her name is or anything about her. And the big concern really here is that the defense actually looked at this African-American juror's post records and went and got them. Judge, we have two law enforcement officers who are on this jury, former retired law enforcement officers. So there's no evidence right now that they did this background check on every single law enforcement officer and pulled every single one of their records. But they did pull this African-American juror's records. So in an effort, I'm assuming, to find a reason to strike him despite his, his statements. So at this point in time, Judge, we are questioning the genuineness of their race-neutral reason. We ask that you uh, receipt Juror 143. Laura Hogue defends the defense strike of Juror 253. Next one, Your Honor, is number 253 that the state raised. 253 was a juror that we moved for cause. We moved for cause based on a number of important reasons asked about self-defense, <clears throat> she said, you can't help what you do to another because of what they did to you. Well, if that was presented in this courtroom, could you give meaningful consideration to citizen's arrest? She was asked, the, you asked the, the state asked you about citizen's arrest, what does that term mean to you? And her answer was that somebody's gotten arrested for something they were accused of doing. So her response to the question of whether she 
would follow the law of citizen's arrest makes it clear that it was a fairly worthless answer since she didn't really know what she was being asked about. You have to prove also, you have to come to it, oh, ask what does she understand the burden of proof question was by the state. She said that you have to prove. You have to come to an agreement and prove whether they were right or whether they were wrong. So for that reason, we began to set this forth to the court under what appeared to be a very clear burden shifting argument and a burden shifting position by this juror. For that reason, we moved for cause. The cause strike was denied. And as one would expect, that would be right at the top of our list of peremptory strikes. From the state, 253. Thank you, Judge. Once again, the state has not actually heard a race neutral reason from the defense. She said she would be open to the self-defense and citizen's arrest defenses. So she is similarly situated to a number of other jurors. The defense has failed to specify their race neutral reason that is different from every other juror that we've interviewed that had these exact same statements and concerns and indicated that they could be fair and impartial and put those initial things aside. We ask that you reseat juror 253. Final word then on 253 from the defense. We had to rate the worst, the best of the worst. And so it's not a response to that to say, well, in Ms. Donikoski's opinion, that particular juror would have been a little higher up on her rating system of people who came into this courtroom having already had an opinion, a strong opinion, and we shouldn't have struck her. So this individual told this court that Ahmaud Arbery did not deserve to die. It was wrong in the written statement. And that is a direct comment on the defendant's guilt. These reasons are race neutral. Next one I have is 386. 386, Your Honor, is a juror, again, that we moved for cause. The cause strike was denied. Juror number 386 put in the questionnaire, while he did say you're innocent until proven guilty, but he says it seems as if Ahmaud Arbery was scared for his life and chose to defend himself against Travis and Gregory McMichael, who were both armed. So we had to begin with that opinion based on the question, what do you think you know about this case? We had a lengthy inquiry with this juror, and this juror was asked, have you formed an opinion about the guilt of the defendants? And this juror responded, yes. Ahmaud Arbery was scared for his life and chose to defend himself. Do you have an opinion as to the guilt of Travis McMichael? He was asked specifically about each defendant and then asked about them all together. I guess they're guilty of, it was an unfair situation, two people against one. So I guess you could say yes. Asked about involvement with organizations that are affiliated with supporting Ahmaud Arbery and his family, he indicated that he had liked a run with Maude post, 
uh, and asked what that meant to him. What were you liking when you when you hit that button? And I used my symbol here, pause. I actually have two of them, pause. He said, I can't put it in words. It's emotion. The fact that they're trying to bring some kind of positivity to it. That's what drew him to this movement. That saying, I run with Maud is equivalent to supporting Ahmad Arbery. I took it. He was just out for a run and killed. And that's what led me to my opinion about Travis's guilt. Asked if he believed that race plays a role in this case, he said, I do, and went on in some detail. We asked the question, this was earlier on, do you think, given your experiences, attitudes, opinions, and knowledge, that you would, doing the switching, that you would want Greg McMichael, if he held those opinions, attitudes, and experiences sitting on your jury, objection, the court sustained. Um, and so we never got to explore the rest of that. This juror was one that I felt we had a fairly strong uh, cause motion for. The court denied it. And again, cause motions that are denied are always the very first of the jurors that we need to strike peremptorily. That's why we have them. And those are race neutral reasons based on bias and already preconceived and strong opinions about the defendant's guilt. Once again, no specific race neutral reason, except a reiteration of what this juror said, which was once again, very, very similar to a number of other jurors in this case. The form says, what do you believe the facts of this case to be? And this juror started out with you are innocent until proven guilty, and then put what he thought the facts of this case were. When Mr. Hogue was questioning him, he talked about fight or flight, but he also said the video is not the whole story. Is this a juror who said, I will follow the law and give meaningful consideration to citizens arrest and self-defense, just like all the other jurors, and he did in fact do that. This juror is similarly situated to a number of other white jurors who answered in the exact same way where they had either experienced or knew about citizens arrest and were able to go ahead and do something where they could put it aside and give the jurors a fair trial in this case. So we ask that juror 386 be receded. Thank you. Anything final on 386 then from the defense? No, Your Honor, it's not a response to race neutral reasons to say other people expressed having formed an opinion of guilt and having bias. So there, that couldn't have been a race neutral reason given the complexity of this voir dire and the enormity of this pretrial publicity. We point out to the court, and if it becomes necessary later as you're considering what the state is, uh, as the, what the movement has argued, that we made many more strikes. Uh, we made many strikes as joint motions for cause against African Americans. And there was no question at that time that those issues were anything but race neutral. My opinion is fixed. So, and I want to point out as well that we struck 13 white people to this 11, the number of 11 African Americans, and those were based on the same reasons, Your Honor, the same strong rooted bias 
that the court either did not accept as a cause strike or did not rise to the level of cause but gave us serious pause, that they formed and expressed an opinion that they knew facts or believed that they knew facts that were critical to their determination of guilt. From the state. Thank you, Judge. And I want to urge the court to, of course, analyze the genuineness of the reasons that were just given. The state is concerned. The defense has stated numerous times that they are rating the worst of the worst. And there's 11 African-American jurors that they struck that are the worst of the worst. In addition, we now have. That's an offensive mischaracterization of what I'm saying. I'm not characterizing those people as bad people. I'm characterizing them as bad for this jury. So I just need to say that. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Joining us once again to discuss these arguments is Paul Butler. Paul, what did you make of all this? You know, Batson is one of those cases that there's been so much legal scholarship about because almost every judge and every prosecutor and every defense attorney would agree that Batson has been a colossal failure. Right after Batson came out, since then, there's been a cottage industry about why it doesn't work and how consistent with a fair trial for the accused person and respecting the rights of jurors not to be discriminated against on the basis of race, how we can make this work. And there are different theories about what the problem is. You know, when lawyers use race as a basis of thinking about the kind of jurors they want, I don't consider that racist. Uh, I think it's taking the limited information you know and trying to figure out the kind of juror you want. Remember, it's only the judge who wants an objective juror. The prosecution wants a juror who's going to lean towards conviction. The defense wants just the opposite. And in criminal cases, race provides some imperfect information, some proxy that might be at least as probative as the other stuff that you know about this potential juror. And when I was a prosecutor in D.C., if I had a case in which a young person in D.C., 99 and 100 times that was a Black person, was accused of a drug crime, or if I had a case in which police officers were major witnesses, I would prefer white jurors to African-American jurors. And most of the jurors in D.C. at that time were Black, but I knew that African-American jurors would be a lot more skeptical about the police. They'd have a lot more concerns about 
why only black people in D.C. get charged with drug crimes when white people commit them just as much. So to win my case, to get my conviction, I thought all other things being equal, a white juror would be more likely to convict. So I think that in terms of uh, calculus about how you win a case, that's a reasonable calculus. The concern is that the Constitution, according to the Supreme Court, forbids it. And so you have this elaborate ritual in which lawyers try to explain to judges, oh, it's not really race. It's this other thing. And courts almost always accept it's this other thing. I wrote a article for a law review last year about a recent Batson case called Flowers. It was a case that was just decided by the Supreme Court. And in that article, uh, I made a point in a more scholarly way that I made just now that just because a lawyer thinks about race when she picks a jury, that doesn't mean that she's a racist. And man, I got so much blowback about that with a lot of people saying, no, if a prosecutor is dismissing a juror because she's Hispanic, that's racist. If a defense attorney doesn't want you on your jury because you're white, that's racist. And I don't think so, but I guess a lot of people do because the concern is that not only would a judge in granting a Batson motion suggest that she doesn't believe the lawyer about race neutrality, a lot of people think that the judge would also be saying that the lawyer is racist. And especially in a relatively small city community, like where the McMichaels and Mr. Bryan are being tried, the courthouse is a a little neighborhood. And even in big cities like New York, D.C., L.A., it's the same judges, defense attorneys, prosecutors. Everybody gets to know each other. And in that instance, it's really hard for a judge to say, I don't believe you. And I think you're, if not a racist, using racial stereotypes in a bad way. And so in all of these conversations between the defense attorney and the judge, we see this tension. We see the judge saying basically to the defense attorneys, I don't think you're a racist and I'm not going to say that. And so that's the the context for all of these little conversations. That's essentially what's happening in, in all of these discussions about jurors. Fascinating. Thank you for that, Paul. After the lawyers completed their arguments, Judge Timothy Walmsley called for a break so that he could form a decision on the state's Batson motion. He returned a half hour later and rendered his decision. And I guess before I get into this, um, one of the challenges that I think uh, counsel recognize in this case is the the racial overtones in the case. And um, those can't, uh, at least here, without the, the jury present, uh, based on the questioning, we have not been able to escape those discussions with the panel, and, and they've just come up in a lot of different contexts. So, you know, this is sort of a continuation of a conversation that I think will continue for a long time with respect to this case uh, and maybe many others. And so we start getting into this question about race. And again, quite a few African-American jurors were excused through preemptory strikes exercised by the defense. But that doesn't mean that the court has the the authority to reseat simply again because there is this prima facie case, because we see it sort of one of those. It's not one of those. We see it. Therefore, it is. There's now additional steps the court needs to engage in. 
One of those steps is the exercise we just went through, which is going through those particular strikes and um, hearing from the, the defendants in this particular case on a reverse Batson on why those strikes were exercised. And then based on all of that, the uh, court is um, in a position where it's got to make another finding, which is that the defendants are not genuine when they gave a reason and that the reason they were claiming is not the real reason those particular jurors were struck. Batson is, is very limited in what it actually provides the court with as far as an instrument, because at least in the state of Georgia, the court, if it hears a legitimate, non-discriminatory, clear, reasonably specific and related reason and reason related to the case, um, that is usually enough to get the court to a finding uh, in this third phase where the, the panelist doesn't need to be um, reseated. There are other states that have a different approach, actually get much more specific. Uh, point to Washington is one of those states that's looked at Batson and recognized the limitations it places on the court. Uh, but effectively, what the court's being asked to do here is determine whether or not the defense is not being genuine with respect to these strikes. And there's all sorts of case law out there, including case law about whether or not you're treating, uh, in this case, it would be uh, African-American uh, potential panelists versus Caucasian, um, how specific the questions have to be and how closely related they are. And I'll tell you, in this particular case, Batson's limitations, I think, are clearly out there. In this particular case, there are these significant overtones of race to begin with. And then we have numerous additional preemptory strikes. We're not just limited to the ones that statutorily sit out there. And then we have extensive questioning of each of the panelists, which start differentiating everybody for different reasons based on answers that are given. Because of that, it becomes very difficult for the court to start working through this problem of are these really genuine reasons that are out there? It gets to the point that I think was raised actually in the Batson decision. I wrote it down. Justice Marshall in his concurrence was talking about Batson. And he said specifically, the decision today will not end racial the racial discrimination that preemptories inject into the jury selection process. And the reason he said that was because his view of it was that uh, preemptories uh, just give the parties the opportunity to place the court and the system into this, this balancing of race versus legitimate purpose. And again, this case makes it difficult because race is, has been injected into this process and we have a significant number of preemptories. All that's to say, I, I've worked through each one of these. Um, I've listened to the defense. Again, in the state of Georgia, all the defense needs to do is provide that legitimate, non-discriminatory, clear, reasonably specific and related reason I have very uh, adept counsel here, and they've been able to explain to the court why, separate from race, those individuals were, in fact, struck from the panel. It does not change the fact that that initial finding was out there. It doesn't feel like that is how it worked, but it's been explained to the court under the terms of Batson why those particular strikes were made. And the court is not going to place upon uh, the defendants of finding that they are being disingenuous to the court or otherwise are not being truthful with the court when it comes to their reasons for striking these jurors. So because of that, and because of, again, the limitations I think Batson places upon this court's analysis, I'm denying the motion. Paul Butler, what do you make of Judge Walmsley's decision? The reason that 
Batson reached the Supreme Court is, in general, it's unconstitutional for the government to make classifications based on race, unless there is a compelling and urgent reason why the government should separate people or judge people based on race, the government can't do that. And in Batson, what the court found was that when lawyers, prosecutors, and ultimately a McCollum defense attorneys use race as a way to select a juror, they're violating the Equal Protection Clause, that's the part of the Constitution that was passed after the Civil War in response to rights that the newly free, formerly enslaved people should have in our democracy. So that's why it's a big deal. And the judge, I think, misunderstands what his role is under Batson and what the appropriate remedy is. So the judge says that he has found intentional discrimination. When A judge finds that a government actor, in this case, the defense, because they're part of the criminal legal system, a government actor has used race to make a decision and there's no legal justification, that's unconstitutional. The judge is supposed to stop that. This judge says something that doesn't quite make sense. He says that He's found intentional discrimination, but he's also found a legitimate purpose that the answers that the defense attorneys gave were race neutral. So apparently what this judge thinks is that if the reasons given by the other side about why it's race neutral that they use their strikes, if those reasons pass the laugh test, then the judge has to overturn the Batson motion. He has to overrule the Batson motion. And that's not what the Supreme Court said. Obviously, if if they're lawyers and they're asked to give race-neutral explanations, they're going to have something to say. And often it's going to make sense. But that's where the judge has to do her job. That's where the judge has to be a judge and determine whether it's plausible or not, whether it makes sense or not. I think the evidence against Mr. Bryan and the McMichaels is strong. I think that what they're accused of doing is is horrid. It's a modern-day lynching. But I'm glad that they have good lawyers. And because they have good lawyers, their lawyers, again, had things to say that sounded reasonable about why these jurors had been struck and how it didn't actually involve race. But again, that doesn't mean that the judge had to believe them. And when we look at the judge's opinion, uh, we see this confusion. He seems to think that in Georgia, uh, whatever the lawyers say, you kind of have to believe them and you have to uh, overrule the Batson motion. That's not what the law is. The court thinks it's a big deal. Intentional discrimination is a big deal. And one other thing to note is that one reason why Batson is so hard to enforce is that there's really smoking gun evidence of intentional discrimination. All criminal lawyers know the rules. You're not supposed to think about race when you select a jury. And even if you do, you're not going to talk about it. Here, the week before, the lawyer for Mr. Bryan had said to the judge in open court, in the jury pool, we need more bubbles. We need more white men over 40 
who did not graduate from college. We don't have enough of those in the pool. So here we have what lawyers call an admission from one of the defense counsel that whiteness is important to him in selecting a jury. And that's got to be part of the analysis when we see these defense lawyers get rid of virtually all of the Black prospective jurors, 11 out of 12. And so in a sense, this is actually a little bit easier for a judge to sustain an objection, to tell the lawyers, I'm not going to let you use strikes against these jurors because I found that they can be fair. And I believe that the reasons that you stated are not accurate. Now, the judge can make nice. The judge can say, I don't think that means you're a racist. And I don't think that that means you're lying to the court. But based on my years of experience as a judge, uh, I think that you're trying to choose what you think is the best set of jurors. And last week, you admitted that whiteness was one of those characteristics that you value. And so I think you're trying to do that, but the Constitution doesn't allow it. The judge was unwilling to do that. And again, if you look at his conversations with the lawyers, these are people who he respects and he intimates that he doesn't want to call them liars. He doesn't want to suggest that they're racist. And that's part of his calculus. The concern, finally, is that this case is far from a slam dunk for the prosecution. It's getting a huge amount of attention in part because it is like a modern day lynching. If these defendants are found not guilty, or if there's a hung jury, people are going to blame the fact that this jury was virtually all white. Whether that's right or wrong, that will be the focus of the conversation. And the judge had the power in this case to create a more diverse jury, to actually follow the law. And my concern is that the judge failed to do that. Paul Butler, as always, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Before we conclude the episode, we're going to take a moment to give you an overview of the jury panel in this case, based on pool report descriptions, to read a more detailed set of individual profiles for each of the jurors and the alternates in the trial. Head over to crimestory.com. There are 15 people on the panel, 12 jurors, and three alternates. Because of statements made in open court, we know this about two seated jury members. One is a black man who works for the railroad. He has grown children, one of whom lives in Brunswick and knew Ahmaud Arbery. This juror also has a cousin who works for the Glynn County Sheriff. Another seated juror is a white woman, also with grown children. She's retired from a job in IT, and one of her children is a probation officer. She reported having negative feelings about the defendants, saying she wonders why they didn't call the police instead of, quote, doing what they did, end quote. Not only is the jury predominantly white, it is also predominantly female, with 11 women to four men. Five of the jurors have either worked in law enforcement or have relatives who do. There are two nurses and two women who work in retail. Four of the jurors said they were retired, six of the jurors are over the age of 60, and three are in their 20s, with the remaining falling in between. Several of the jurors expressed a willingness to serve. One, a woman who recently moved to Glynn County, summed it up this way, quote, This is sort of a civic duty I can do. I donate blood and I can sit on a jury, end quote. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery. 
Join us on our next episode as we begin our examination of the attorney's opening statements to this jury. You can find more information about this trial, including a full rundown of descriptions of the jurors and alternates, at crimestory.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our consulting producer is Paul Butler. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. This episode was written by Karen Ann Coburn. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Trial Audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery.